In the fourth chapter of Luke, we read of Jesus' return to the synagogue in which he spent almost every Sabbath in his boyhood and his young man years. And we're told then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out throughout all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogue, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. My mother grew up on a farm in north-central Indiana near a very small town named Alamo. I grew up hearing stories from my mother about her growing up on that farm and how much she loved it. The land was homesteaded by her ancestors in the previous century, and it was the pride and the identity of the Gilkey family, both to themselves and to the community. The house was large for the time. The barn was made of maple beams cut and hewed in the nearby woods. There were several outbuildings of various sizes, one of which was the smokehouse, over which for years hung the muzzle-rolling rifle that one of my great-great-uncles carried with him in the Civil War, a gun that since has passed down to me. Mom loved to talk about the fields, the animals, the woods, the creek, but especially how much she loved tagging along with her dad whatever he happened to be doing. He was a gentle and a quiet man, well-educated for the time, working as a schoolteacher when a death in the family forced him to return to take over the farm. I never learned the reasons that the farm was lost. It could have been poor management. My grandfather wasn't trained to be a farmer, and dreaming and agriculture don't mix very well. It might have been one of the many unfortunate consequences of the Great Depression. But I do know that having to leave the farm and seeing her dad go to work as a janitor combined to make that one of the bleakest times in my mother's memories. A few years ago, I got to visit the farm for the first and the only time. The house remained. It was occupied by a somewhat eccentric old bachelor who made it very obvious that neatness wasn't his primary concerns in life. The barn still stood, its maple beams shining in the light coming in from outside through its dormer windows. Most of the outbuildings had collapsed. I couldn't identify the smokehouse where that gun used to hang. But the woods were still there, the lofty trees giving it a park-like appearance. 
The creek still bubbled over out crappings of gray shale rock. Between the village and the farm is a small cemetery on land once donated by our family. Its headstones bear names familiar to us from our mother's stories and the family history. I was there with my sister when we walked over those familiar acres that were once so familiar to our mom, remembering her stories, trying to see what she used to see, trying to feel what she used to feel. It's interesting to think about what the effects on our culture, on our families, on our economy would be if the laws of the United States required the periodic return of property to family, families of its original owners. The accumulation of vast amounts of land and the means of production of the nation's wealth would all be reversed. Because of the decrease of efficiency, the cost of things would surely rise. But it could be argued that the benefits to us as a people would outweigh the savings of the massness of present realities. Family farms would become family farms again. Mom and pop stores would return to local and familiar proprietorship. If there were such laws in our land, that Indiana farm would come once again to be known by the names of the descendants of those who felled the first of its trees and first plowed its fields. And to us, as a family, this would be a joyous thing. We would return to this once cherished place, dismayed at first by the many signs of decay, nearly overwhelmed by the enormity of the tasks before us, but then driven both by love and by practical necessity, we'd roll up our sleeves and we'd go to work. Junk and debris accumulated over decades would be burned or buried or carried to the side of the road. Paint, peeling paint would be scraped and new coats applied. Shingles and glass would be replaced. The garden would be weeded and neat rows of carrots and peas and corn would be planted. A sharecropping arrangement would be made with a local farmer so that the fields once again could become productive. The electrical service would be brought up to date. Plumbing and heating would be modernized. Eventually, a handful of cows would stand patiently in line waiting to be milked. Chickens would look for bugs in the ground and the rising of the sun would be welcomed by the crowing of a rooster. Family pictures would be hung over the mantle. The family name would be printed in bold letters on the new mailbox. And maybe there'd be a little girl skipping along in the footsteps of an older man as he went about his chores. But in America, there are no such laws. Property changes hands irregularly. And then only according to the needs or the desires of the present owners, without regard to the memories and the dreams of those whose severed roots are sunk deep into its soil. But in ancient Israel, there was such a law, a law not written by man, but a law written by God. It required that every 50 years, almost all real estate that had changed hands would revert to the family of original tenancy. The time these transfers made, recall the day or the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee began on the Day of Atonement. Two transactions of great importance took place on that day. 
Land that had been lost was returned to its original occupants, and Hebrew slaves were set free. The word jubilee comes into our language as an expression of joy and celebration. And we whose religious and cultural roots are embedded in scripture can easily understand why. The year of jubilee was a time of restoration and it was a time of release. It was a year that began with the sound of trumpets being blown in every place. A day on which liberty was proclaimed throughout the land. It was a season in which displaced families returned to lands they had heard their elders speak of with tears. It was a day on which the shackles of slavery fell to the ground and men leapt and laughed aloud in celebration of their freedom. 3,500 years after God gave Moses this law for his covenant people Israel, You and I come together as Christians to celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. If we truly understand the significance of this piece of our history, then the thoughts swirling around in our minds and the emotions flowing from our hearts will be very much like those experienced by our ancestors who heard the trumpets blare on the Day of Atonement and understood their meaning. On this day, In this service, we remember our restoration. We celebrate our release. The statutes concerning the year of Jubilee were set forth in Leviticus 25. Isaiah quotes from them in his prophecy, and in the fourth chapter of Luke, our Lord Jesus picks up these words from the book of Isaiah, and he says, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Christ saw the provisions of Jubilee as anticipating the work that he came to do, to preach the gospel to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives. On this Communion Sunday, I'd like to talk with you about the year of Jubilee. One of the transactions that took place on that day was the return of lost property. A fundamental principle of Old Testament property law is found in Leviticus 25, where God says, the land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. The land itself was understood as belonging to the Lord. The people were tenants on that land. In his word, God promises to bless the land with fruitfulness if his people will honor him by keeping his law. And he warns of the barrenness of the land if they should refuse. In the 24th Psalm, David wrote, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And a righteous Hebrew conversant with his faith would understand those words in a better way than you and I do. It's important for us to notice that the statutes requiring tithing grow out of this principle of the divine authorship and the human tendency of the land. If you studied those passages, you've noticed a couple of things. 
You've noticed, first of all, that the major sections of the law dealing with the practice of tithing are all linked to passages describing the sacrifices that the Hebrews were expected to bring to their worship for a variety of reasons on a variety of occasions. And we understand that by making a sacrifice of himself, our Lord Jesus made an end to sacrifice. But secondly, you might have noticed that the things were subject to the tithe were all more or less related to the produce of the land. Wages were paid in ancient Israel. The law deals with the wages that were paid in ancient Israel, and yet nowhere in the passages dealing with tithing are we are told that a man was to tithe his earnings. The things mandated by the law to be tithed were all foodstuffs, whether grain or oil or an animal. And in fact, in the law, there's a provision made for a man who lives a long way away from the central place of worship. And the provision is that he can sell locally what he would ordinarily tithe, take the money to the place of worship, and there buy foodstuffs with it and present that as his tithe. All of this is tied to this elemental idea that the land belonged to God. The people were sharecroppers on that land, and the tithe was, in effect, payment that was due to the owner of the land. When the Hebrews settled the land, it was divided among the 12 land-owning tribes, according to borders that God himself set. And then within each parcel allotted to a tribe, Divisions were made according to the families of that tribe. And within the law, there are provisions made to maintain the integrity and the equilibrium of these original divisions, and one of which is those regarding the year of Jubilee. A piece of land in ancient Israel could be lost in a variety of ways. A man might grow old and become tired of farming. He had no descendant or his descendants had no interest in taking his place on the farm. The land could be sold. Another possibility is that the owner of a land fell into debt that he couldn't pay and the land had to be sold to satisfy his creditors. Such things as illness, disinterest, bad management might have caused the loss of property. But whatever the cause, wherever blame and responsibility might lie, It was the practice in Israel that every 50 years, on the Day of Atonement, the beginning of the year of Jubilee, the land was returned to the family of original tenancy. This is the law of God. The other transaction that took place on the Day of Atonement, at the beginning of the year of Jubilee, was the freeing of Hebrew slaves. And this is far more central to our thoughts on this Communion Sunday. A Hebrew man could become a slave for a variety of reasons, but most of them had to do with debt. Perhaps he'd overreached himself in the marketplace. Or maybe he'd had a run of bad luck with his crops, a run of bad luck that might be tied directly to his seeking the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. Or he'd incurred financial responsibility before the courts and didn't have resources to pay his debt. But whatever the reason, his last recourse was to sell himself into slavery or indentured servitude 
to his creditors. Under the Old Testament law, there were three ways by which a Hebrew slave might be freed from his slavery. The law placed a six-year limit on this kind of indentured servitude, which meant that at the end of the sixth year, a man had to be given his freedom. A second means to freedom would be the charity of a member of his family who chose to pay the debt that put the man in slavery in the first place, thus redeeming him. And that's the word the Old Testament uses, redeeming him from his condition and setting him free. And the third way for a Hebrew slave to be freed was the arrival of the Day of Atonement and the year of Jubilee. At first in the tabernacle and later in the temple, there was a place that was curtained off from the sanctuary as a whole. It was called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, the presence and the holiness of God were somehow concentrated. Into the Holy of Holies, only one man could go, and then only one time every year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. And that man who was allowed entrance was the high priest, a male descendant of Aaron, who was the brother of Moses. When he stepped behind the veil of into the Holy of Holies, his hands were not clean. On them was blood, the blood of a goat that had just been slain for the sins of the people, and the blood of a bull that had just been slain because of the sins of the high priest. The high priest entered the presence of God to seek mercy, mercy for himself, mercy for the people that he represented. And this ritual was repeated once a year, every year, year after year after year, until at last Jesus Christ, the great high priest of our faith, made his appearance in sacred history offered himself as that ultimate sacrifice for sins and made an end to sacrifice. I urge you to consider the sweet and mysterious coincidence in the divine ordering of the parts of the Day of Atonement. Noises fill the air all across the face of the land of Israel. Down its many valleys echoed the sounds of trumpets declaring its arrival. There were the sounds of sobbing and laughter from families returning to places of their roots. There was a metallic clang as chains and shackles fell to the ground and shouts of joy of men freed from their bondage. But while this noise rose from the land, In the silence of the sanctuary, on that same day, one man, with blood on his hands, entered the presence of God to plead for his people. It was an almost festive day. It was a Friday, and a large crowd had been drawn by the public spectacle. Some brought blankets so they could sit on the ground. Others may have carried picnic baskets to the place. 
The scene where they gathered is said to have been ugly. There are those who say that it looked like a human skull. But it was not as ugly as the occasion. For in the midst of this crowd stood a cross. And on that cross hung a man, nails driven through his wrists and his ankles. And he was left there to die. It was a noisy day. People pushed and shoved one another to get to the places where they could see better. And others complained loudly about the pushing and the shoving. Men talked, perhaps argued among themselves about what they thought of the man who was dying and what they had heard about him. There were the sharp commands of Roman soldiers warning the crowd not to come too close. Others taunted him, ridiculed him, challenging him, having to shout because of the noise of the crowd. But on that hill, a piece of sacred business was being done that no human eye could see. The greatest of all of the high priests had entered the presence of God to make a sacrifice for his people. The blood on his hands was not that of a goat or a bull, but his own. The prayers he offered were not for himself, but for you and for me. On that day, if one understanding what was taking place in that place would listen, he would hear the distant sound of a trumpet. Its sound grows louder and louder and louder. And he hears the signs of chains and shackles falling to the ground and the glad shouts of men and women and young people being freed from their slavery. This is the liberty that is proclaimed to this day. Have you heard the trumpet? Let us pray. Our Father, we stand in awe, barely able to speak when we consider what took place on that most beautiful and that most horrible of all of the Fridays in all of the history of the world. Our Father, we come to you in a sense of great joy and jubilee as we recognize that your Son, Jesus, redeemed us from our slavery to sin and has set it forever free. We pray that there might be among us that that brooding awareness of the evil that lives within us yet and an eagerness to be done with it, and at the same time the great joy of redemption and freedom as we begin to worship you with the use of these sacred symbols. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.